Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Today I want to launch what will be a series and I think the series will be, uh, as the, the one that I just recently completed was, will be a series of three shows. And what we want to do is we want to talk about revocable trust in a little more detail, because really that's kind of the centerpiece of your estate planning. If you're a believer at all in what we espouse on this show and, and what other authorities in the area of estate planning have also said – and you already have some sort of revocable trust probably in place. So revocable trust, when I say it's the centerpiece, I mean that ultimately you want all your assets to end up there. And as we talked before, sometimes you don't put them in there originally for reasons relating to triggering uh, taxes that might be due on tax-deferred assets, or there may be some things that don't really come into existence until after you're gone, such as the proceeds from the life insurance. You know, that's going to occur when you pass away, then it goes into your trust. So the trust is intended to be the receptacle of virtually all your assets in some form or another. And then there'll be some that you might not have noticed, and that's the reason you have what's called the pour-over will, which is the, the will that is a net that captures anything that wasn't actually in your trust by an oversight. So this isn't things that will have a beneficiary clause that will put them directly into the trust. Those are okay. That'll happen automatically. None of that stuff will go through probate. But this is the stuff that maybe you didn't know you owned. Uh, maybe it was involved in a transaction at the time. Maybe you just didn't feel like changing a title or whatever it might have been. So it ends up in your estate. That's never ideal, but it's not catastrophic because it's still your estate, thankfully, has this will. And the will, remember, is triggered. Uh, it, the will is the one thing that covers assets that would go into probate. So the, the goal when you create trust is to avoid probate. But you recognize that there may be some things that for the reasons I mentioned and others that are not in your trust, and that's okay. Usually it doesn't amount to much, and they're captured by this net, which is the pour-over will, and the pour-over will says uh, to the personal representative, dump those assets into my trust. So they all end up in the same place. So when I say that your trust is really, the revocable trust is the centerpiece of everything for you. It really is. It's the means in which you probably have the assets in there that will take care of you while you're alive. You have a trustee in place that the moment you become incompetent or incapacitated, whatever it might be, then you have somebody who just without missing a beat picks up with the authority that you had and can step in and do those things. And if you watch this show very much, you also know that that the, the person who we'll call the agent under the durable power of attorney, that person is not, it's not unusual for that person to be your trustee. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but it kind of works nicely. So they have authority over everything that's outside the trust, and then you have perhaps the same person that might have control of the things that are inside the trust. The whole idea is you want all of your assets to be working in a coordinated way to take care of you, whatever needs you may have, whatever decisions may need to be made uh, to the extent that you're incompetent to do that. Maybe you'll regain your competency. It could have been that it's a stroke and after a period of time you recover. Uh, it might be that you don't recover. But either way, 
you know that the things that are important to you, the things that you've defined as being important to you, are being taken care of. Such peace of mind you derive from that. I, there aren't many things that give you the sort of peace of mind that that when people talk about estate planning, it does give you that. You know, often I, I'll talk to my daughters. You know, and this subject is I can tell you it's not interesting to anybody who's in their twenties. I would argue it's not that interesting to anybody in their 30s and to some some greater extent in the 40s, but not like it is to those of us who have hit our 60s. You know, we see this as imminent. It's not this thing that we know will happen someday, maybe in the future. This is something that that we know there's a significant chance that that something could occur and the necessity for this sort of planning is is just called upon immediately. So to know that when you get up every morning and go about your day, this stuff is handled. Uh, you hope that nothing catastrophic will happen. You hope that you'll live a long, healthy life. But either way, you're covered. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. The revocable trust in tandem with the durable power of attorney is really the centerpiece. And ultimately, the, the durable power of attorney will pass away, will, will disappear the moment that you pass away. So a person who's acting under the durable power of attorney, the agent, they're called legally the attorney in fact. They're not an attorney, but they're called the attorney in fact. The attorney in fact loses their authority when you die. So it's to take care of some stuff that are not in the trust while you're alive. And so ultimately, you really want to give the focus of your attention, the bulk of your attention to this thing called your revocable trust. Now, when we say that, we know that some of you have a better feel for that receptacle than others. Uh, but but because it's such the centerpiece, it's the focal point of your plan, I really want you to understand this just handful of moving parts, this small number of moving parts. But the moment you have a little more appreciation of this, you can be the sort of effective partner with your estate planner that you should be. The analogy uh, in terms of your relationship with your estate planner should not be the relationship that a patient might have with a surgeon because the patient's job is just to be inert, just to show up. And then they're, you know, they have anesthesia administered and they're to just hold still, right? That's not the relationship that you should have with your estate planning attorney. Your estate planning attorney, his or her effectiveness will depend upon the extent to which you not only inform them and share um, and contemplate together, but also to the extent that you work together because there are things that you have to participate in to maintain the plan, to do the things that need to be done, to update it as needed. This isn't something that, you know, it's one and done. Instead, this is something that that you will have a, as we talk often on the show, you have a relationship with your estate planning lawyer, unlike, say, your divorce lawyer. Your divorce lawyer is closer to a transaction, maybe a long transaction. It may be a very expensive transaction. But the point is, it's not 
a decade. It's not two decades, three decades. That the ideal relationship with your estate planner should start early in life, and hopefully the estate planner is, lives a long, healthy life, as, as, as we hope you do, and, and you continue to, to interact and to update and to keep mu- informed, mutually informed about changes in the law as well as changes in your circumstances. That should be the relationship. So for you to be effective in, in your part of this partnership, then you have to really have some appreciation for, for these things, which I hope you don't find too boring. Uh, some of you I know will find it more interesting than others. So I'm not going to avoid anything that, that, that is remotely academic in this discussion. I want to stay on the practical, pragmatic things. But still, for you to appreciate your role and, and to understand fully this hugely powerful vehicle, the, the revocable trust, you need to know these moving parts. So let, let's talk them through. And there's just a few. On the one hand, we know a settler. The settler, that's you, uh, it can be called a trustor, but settler would be the term most commonly used, sometimes grantor. But the settler is somebody who creates the trust. So you you create the trust, you identify who you're going to have run this trust, which will be a trustee, and then you identify who you want to be your beneficiaries. Uh, that's not complicated, but they're these are important roles, and you need to understand the difference between each role. And there are rights and duties and obligations associated and limitations associated with each role. And then I'm going to introduce another role, and we'll do that in today's show when I talk to you about the role of the trustee. I want to take each of these, though, and during the next several shows, make you more acquainted and more comfortable with thinking about and talking to your attorney and others about about your plan and why your plan is what it is and whether or not perhaps there's something that's been overlooked in terms of an opportunity to improve your plan. Um, and you also have to be capable of talking intelligently. It's not essential, but it's definitely a good idea for you to be able to talk intelligently to your children or your other loved ones about and what they can expect. We've given this conversation, we've given this idea a lot of attention, and I know that that it's often a difficult thing for people to do, so they don't want to do it. I understand that. We'll talk more about that when we talk about beneficiaries. But now, today, I want to, to focus on this, this hugely important role, and that's the trustee. Now, you probably know, if you followed this show at all, you know when you first create the revocable trust, it is revocable. You have complete control, and you, you are competent by definition if you create it in order for it to be valid. You had to be competent. So you created the trust, and you assigned yourself really all three roles. I mean, you're a settler unavoidably, uh, but you're also the beneficiary, right, initially. You have successor beneficiaries, the which are the real probably primary motivation for your doing this, but, but you're a beneficiary. And you also have to have somebody who runs it. And guess what? You're the trustee too for the time being because you're capable of that. So life goes on for you in a very normal way. It's, it's not intrusive. It's not it's not exhaustive for you to have to maintain this. It's very simple. Uh, it's almost um, self-operating, pretty much, from the time that you put it in place. You'll do some things preliminarily, but then it's going to self-govern. Uh, but the time will come, though, when those roles will spread out. And that first occasion will probably be when you become incompetent, assuming that that's not at the same time you die. Uh, so if, if you're incompetent, 
then guess what? You're no longer a trustee. There's a successor trustee, but you're still beneficiary and you're still the only beneficiary if that's the way you've written it. And most people do. So then this person is making decisions about virtually everything that's important to you in your life. So let, let's talk about how we select this person and and what are some of the considerations that we need to have when we think about a trustee. Many people choose a family member for a trustee. Um, that's often not a bad idea. Um, some people, though, will think because being a trustee can require some professional capabilities or it can require some levels of sophistication that perhaps your loved one you may not be confident has, then you may want to have two people as trustee and then delegate roles. And that's not at all unusual. It's perfectly okay. You could go ahead and, and have one person who makes decisions about the personal care, et cetera, those personal decisions that a trustee would make. And then you have somebody else who manages, does called investment and management of trust assets. So that person may be, uh, could be somebody who works with a brokerage firm, um, could be a lawyer. Many lawyers don't want to be in that role. Uh, but the point is, you want you may want to think about having somebody else share the responsibilities with your loved one. Many people like that better than simply having a professional, because you could do that. You could say, well, there are banks that have trust departments, and that's all they do is act as trustees in that department. And so aren't they really professional? Yes, they are. And they're going to have lawyers who are available to assure that every I's dotted and T's crossed. They're going to be sure that things get done as they get done. There'll be insurance. You know, institutions like that all have insurance if things go wrong, if it's mishandled, if there's embezzlement, whatever it might be. A big advantage over cousin Fred uh, who who may are assuming the best of intentions may still end up having the money negligently spent, and when that happens, often there's just no recourse for your loved ones or for you. So, some people really like institutional trustees, but think about this though: if you're thinking about an institutional trustee, you probably need to have a significant amount of money. When I say significant, it has to be enough to pay them perhaps one percent associated with that role. Um, and this is, you know, they will invest and manage. So it might be that their investment and management clearly compensates for the cost. So it might be that, in effect, it may turn out that it's free compared to what your relative might have done. So that's a way to think about it. But but you have to understand that a professional trustee, a professional fiduciary, and that's what trustees are, whether they're professional or not, they're all fiduciaries. And a little bit more about that in a second. But there's somebody, though, who will probably get a better rate of return on those assets than perhaps your loved one, uh, usually. But they have to be paid. I mean, they are professionals. So uh, you can have three, four, five. There's no limit on the number of trustees you can have. And and they, I'm talking about simultaneously. Certainly, you can name and should name successor trustees. Definitely have successor trustees. But I'm thinking about... Do you want one? Do you want two? Do you want three? Anything beyond that, I think it may be a little crazy. Some people do it. Uh, definitely do an odd number. You don't want to tie a vote on an important decision. The whole idea is to not end up in front of a judge settling a dispute. The point, one of the remarkably wonderful things about it, about trust generally, revocable trust, is that you you stay out of probate and you stay out of the courthouse generally. Uh, there may be things that will have to have a judge decide at some point. Sometimes those those corners or those difficulties come along. But but generally speaking, a trust 
you know, properly handled, there's a good chance you'll stay out of court, period, of any sort. Uh, certainly avoid probate. But it is a point of refuge or it is a point of last resort to the extent that there is a problem that has to be solved. So you should derive some satisfaction from that. So when we're thinking about a trustee, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about that they need this judgment capability, whether it's professional judgment or technical judgment or not. They definitely need to have good judgment, meaning they have to have a sound head on their shoulders. They need to be capable of making wise decisions. That really, I think, is essential more than any expertise in a particular area. And the other element that I think is absolutely essential is character. This has got to be somebody that you trust, that they're ethical, they're honest, they'll do the right thing. Unavoidably, there's always some opportunity for mischief, but uh, but the consequences are grave, I can tell you, uh, because this person is a fiduciary. So honesty is, cr- is critical to this role. But, but something that bolsters uh, the position of trustee and that gives you a degree of protection that, that somebody in this position position might not normally provide you, is that the law in Anglo-American law, at least, treats something called a fiduciary as a position of great honor and responsibility in our legal system. A fiduciary is that highest level of trust that, that a position can occupy legally in our system of law. Um, and this is somebody who has a duty to always think in terms of the benefit of their ward or their charge um, or the beneficiary, the the person over whom they have been placed to care for assets or whatever is a very solemn responsibility. There cannot be conflicts of interest. All those are judged against the the fiduciary. Even the appearance of a conflict, even if if even if this conflict did not in fact affect the the fiduciary's judgment, say that choice of one supplier versus another, and there's a financial relationship with one supplier, and they chose that. But maybe, in fact, they would have chose that anyway because it's the better. Automatically, in in a case very similar to that, the the statute will provide that whatever benefit that occurred from that has to be refunded to the beneficiaries. So, there's, there's harsh consequences. Uh, they can be charged with paying for the items or losses or whatnot that might have occurred if they're guilty of violating any of these ethical standards. Um, so being a fiduciary is not something that you want to gleefully or unthinkingly jump into. It's, it's, uh, it's a serious step, and, and if somebody understands the level of responsibility they, they have, they're going to pause before they agree to do it. And, and that's the reason I was suggesting a while ago as to professionals, they should be paid. But I would even suggest as the family members, you know, it's often appropriate for you to pay them in some way, depending on the amount of time and effort and responsibility that's involved. So, and, and also keep in mind the time frame we're talking about here. It's the balance of your life, whatever that is. But then... Uh, I'm going to. I have argued to you, and I'll continue to argue to you. Not not in this show, and perhaps not in this series. Well, I will a little bit when we talk about beneficiaries. But you want to keep this trust in place for the benefit of your beneficiaries, meaning that you don't want to just have funds distributed after you pass away. So you've avoided probate. You know, you pass away on a Friday. Technically, on Saturday, the 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 funds could be distributed. Uh, believe it or not, 
It could be that simple and quick. That's one of the beautiful things about trust. You don't wait on probate. You don't wait on lawyers. You don't wait on judges and court dates, et cetera. But my argument to you is, no, 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 no. You're, you're missing the very best things about it, and that's the things that you can do for your beneficiaries over time. So that that could be multi-generational, and that doesn't assume you're worth a billion dollars. I mean, it, it assumes that that you have probably more than a million uh, and I know some of you would fall in that category. It may mean you have several million in some cases. In other words, we're not talking about what's called generational wealth here. We're talking about wealth that is money that you want to be allocated over perhaps beyond your children and go to your grandchildren. And and through accumulation over time, compounding, you know the effect of a dollar that compounds. That money can turn into a substantial sum that could be life-changing for your grandchildren. It may be that your children want it to be that way. You may you can structure it so that your children get to have a choice as to whether or not they want to take the money themselves or not draw on it. And instead, it stays in the hands of their children or it, it stays in the trust, which will ultimately place it in the hands of their children uh, down the line. So there's so much flexibility, but the trustee that you choose plays a critical role in this. So uh, often you either want somebody who is younger than you um, or at least there, you have a clear path to a successor. So it may be somebody that, that's your age or a little bit older, but you're okay with that because to the extent that they're not capable of doing it, you have a strong second and a strong third and a strong fourth you know, behind them in succession or simultaneously. But, but th- this, this decision, though, you have to recognize is going to go beyond a decision for five or 10 years. And when you decide on your trustees, you're making a plan, let's assume, for... 30, 40 plus years. So that does make you pause and think, wow, how do I make that decision? Well, again, thankfully, you have a legal system that imposes such harsh consequences and such a heavy responsibility on these on the trustee that you can have some peace of mind that, that the plan that you put in place will survive. But it does bring us back, doesn't it, to that choice of trustees. Um, even though you have this the, the, this wonderful panoply of legislation and common law that that protects that's designed to protect you and your plans and your beneficiaries, if you choose somebody that's that's a little wily, then let's face it, I don't know how what consolation it's going to be to your beneficiaries if the money gets wasted and and there's no way to no recourse. You know, it's no satisfaction that there may be a criminal action or something uh, if the money can't be recovered. So pick carefully the person that's going to be a trustee. And, and I want to introduce to you, though, also another factor that's going to be relevant, a couple of things. Um, one is, is you need to think about the geographical proximity. Um, often that is a big issue depending on how involved they have to be on a regular basis. Is there a business involved that they're going to be involved with running or at least overseeing, not running? You wouldn't want your trustee to be a CEO of your company, but you would want a trustee perhaps to to hold the, the company, to hold the stock of your small business, perhaps a company that your family founded. It could be owned by the, the trust or the, the trustee could own a majority of shares. So you have the, the trustee effectively sitting on the board and having authority over the CEO. So you want 
you want somebody though that has the capability of of giving the time that's necessary. You have to judge when you look at your assets, your portfolio, what will it look like uh, when you're not managing it anymore? Think about that. Do you want key assets like a family business to be sold? You need to communicate that to the trustee because uh, the trustee can take that and put that money into passive assets that generate rates of return, I'm sure, less than your business. If if you're dealing with the complexity of running a business, you always want a rate of return substantially above what you would get with a passive investment. So you maybe the market is saying 6% on a passive investment. Maybe your business is throwing off a family business. It's not unusual to throw off 15 20% or more. So you have to think about what will happen to the particular assets that comprise your net worth. Do you want the trustee to keep that portfolio intact? That needs to be communicated to the trustee. The trustee's duty, above all things, their ethical responsibility, is to assure that the purposes and the terms of the trust are followed to the T for the benefit of the beneficiaries. That that's the marching order. That's the most overarching marching order uh, for a trustee. So they have to do what you say, and they have to do it in a way that is for the benefit of the beneficiary. Um, so the person, it may be good if they're local, depending on the portfolio. It may not matter, which, you know, you can cast a broader net, but you do want their attention. And depending on, again, the composition of the portfolio, it may not require much attention. It may be it's, you know, index fund. I mean, some people will will have a provision that they want all the real estate sold. Uh, they want any businesses they own, business interests sold, and they want that money placed in a mutual fund or some other pooled investment such as index indexing. And you can do that through ETFs or whatnot. So these are simple investments where – they're kind of brainless, actually. And this is something Cousin Fred could do. Cousin Fred could buy mutual funds. You know, it's called diversification. Could diversify the the investments over a broad range of, of industries or sectors and, and, you know, get a market, get a rate of return that is market. And sometimes market, if you can do that well, that's, some experts argue, the best you can do in the long run. And they think anything else is luck. There is that school of thought. Don't get me started on that. It's called modern portfolio theory. And, uh, but there are a lot of real smart people who believe, uh, particularly in academia, University of Chicago and, and elsewhere, that, that believe that ultimately the best you can possibly do is to do what the market does um, and, and to assure that you eliminate what's called uncompensated risk then you need to diversify so that you've captured you know, what, what the entire market will do. So you, how do you do that? Well, you do that really through pooled investments like ETFs and, and, and mutual funds, um, et cetera. I, I should tell you that, that there, is, there is this philosophy that dominates the entire field of, of fiduciary and trust fund management, and it really obligates fiduciaries to – to uh, not take large risks, uh, but they are allowed to take intelligent risks. But it does require diversification. Diversification is a key cornerstone of instructions for fiduciaries. Uh, fiduciaries are expected to diversify. So, so getting a rate of return on your investments from the trustee doesn't really require a lot of financial acumen, despite what I said earlier. 
Uh, and I still say, I, I repeat that, I do think it's kind of nice to have somebody who is an authority on investments. They are going to assure that you do get the, the best return you can. I think your odds are better with them, for example, than, than this mythical um, uh, cousin Fred. But, but cousin Fred is capable, with some advice, of putting your money in safe, broad investments where it's essentially going to do what the market does. So in the market, when some things go up, others go down. If you're well diversified, the point is that you eliminate all the risk that's associated with particular industries or particular companies. And instead, you you can count on a return that's based on market. So your trustee... Uh, should be somebody who is is conscientious. I should add that to the list. They they should be somebody who's going to uh, be sure that that these things are done that need to be done, that the investments are followed up on. They need to provide reports. Reporting is important and information to beneficiaries. That's going to be less of a concern while you're alive because uh, the, the point at which they'll be reporting to you would be when you're incompetent. So that's that's going to be less important to you. Uh, perhaps maybe others that are taking care of you, they would have that obligation to provide that information to them. But but primarily their role is going to kick in when you're gone and they're providing these quarterly reports of how the investments are doing. They have to provide any information regarding their compensation, regarding any ser- significant developments that affect the value or the benefits to the beneficiaries. So they do have duties that that sound a little like accounting, um, and it's not quite as, as uh, daunting as the idea of providing an accounting report but it is a report that has to show each year at a minimum, at a minimum each year, and sometimes more frequently if there are other tr- important transactions that occur. They have to provide a report that shows money in, money out, a list of what the investments were, uh, how, how they have done, perhaps in groups or in segments. So this is, this is the stuff that being a trustee is made of, and this doesn't assume you're a, a millionaire. Uh, if you leave, I will assume that you're leaving in excess of $500,000. Uh, it could be a million plus. Certainly, you can see how how very quickly you could have funds that are spread over a variety of investments that require some attention. Uh, but again, it's not stock trading. Let me emphasize, any any fiduciary who's doing stock trading better have specific instructions from you and your trust. If they're doing that and and they expect to survive a suit or an action to remove them by beneficiaries, then then they better have a specific instruction from you telling them to do that. If you tell them to do it, then they're covered. But I'm telling you, it's considered it's considered unethical, uh, a breach of fiduciary duty to try to do stock selection. And generally speaking, I'm sure there's some exception. But so what they're going to do is they're going to do the pooled investments. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that they've got to keep track of it. They've got to be very meticulous about segregating funds. They can't confuse your money with their money. They have to be in separate accounts and identified separately as assets of the trust. Each of those account entries, whether it's a bank, any other financial institution, a brokerage house, all of them, if somebody checks, it should not simply show that trustee's name, but show them as trustee for your trust. So you're getting, I, I want you, I want to impress upon you when I talk about trustee, the fact that that this is not, you know, an afterthought. 
This is not, oh, this is just somebody to to hand my money out when I'm gone. Um, so yeah, sis, my sister can do that or my brother or my dad. You know, maybe your sister or your brother or your dad can do it. But the point is you should go through the the sort of analysis that I've just described to you and hold them up against that expectation and see how they fare when they have to do these things that we're discussing. Um, now, I will tell you that you can backstop a trustee to some extent. Um, a trustee can be backstopped with what's called a trust protector. I know when they first hear this, many people think, well, gee, a, a trust protector, we have a trustee. Now we're talking about somebody in addition to a trustee. Uh, and it does seem a little redundant at first, but here's the idea. The, the idea is that do you want somebody who you trust, who is kind of off to the side, they don't have responsibilities of a trustee. This is not somebody who's going to be coming in and managing the trust. This is somebody that you can go to that you trust that would never be, agree to be a trustee, but they're honest, they know you, they're principled, um, and you go to them and, and perhaps they also have good judgment. Let, let's count on that. And so you go to them, we'll call it Uncle Fred. So in this case, it's Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred is somebody who's willing to play this role, and he's willing to choose somebody to assume this role when he's gone. So he'll pick his successor. And you're okay with that because it's his judgment that will pick his successor. Um, what does this person do? The role of a trust protector is to kind of look in. To, to look down from above or to the side somewhere. They're not, they're not involved in day-to-day -day activities or even month-to-month -month activities, but there's somebody who has the ability to check in and see if things are going as planned or perhaps something weird has come up where the trust needs to be changed and, and they know how you would want it to be changed. You can give the trust protector the ability to, to move the, the, the trust location so wherever that is, is going to be subject to the laws of that state. Sometimes you want to be in a different jurisdiction because the jurisdiction has more favorable laws. So maybe, maybe Missouri will pass a statute that makes somehow your investments or your trust less favorable here, and you want to be able to move it. Uh, they would have the ability to, to reach in and do those sorts of things, things that a trustee normally doesn't do. Remember, the trustee's job is to follow your instructions. The trust protector is somebody that that you really trust, uh, a confidant almost. And this is somebody who probably wouldn't agree to be a trustee. Again, it's, a, it's not somebody who's likely to want to do that sort of work. But they are willing to, to be that big brother or that uncle or somebody that, that you really trust their judgment and their honesty, and they're willing to keep an eye on things. So the trust protector has a lot of power. They can undo something that the trustee does. If they want to reach, if they see the trustee is sold, maybe the family farm was something that's really important to you, didn't want it sold, uh, but the trustee sells it. And perhaps there's no provision in there because you didn't foresee that happening. So you didn't put a prohibition in the trust against that. You can't think of everything, right? Nor should you have to. So the trust protector is somebody who can reach in and overrule the trustee's decision to sell, for example, the family farm. Um, the, the trust protector can help resolve issues with beneficiaries. They can change, uh, move beneficiaries around. You can give them a lot of power, in other words. You can give them kind of the power that you had, 
Uh, so the trust protector, some people don't have it at all, and that's okay. It's probably most trusts. I'm sure the majority of trusts do not have a trust protector because people just don't fool with it. And you may be thinking, ah, I don't want to fool with it. Uh, but if you want somebody like that, if you have somebody in mind that can play that role and and you know you see some some potential issues down the road, then it's great to have a trust protector. It's somebody to keep their eye on the trustee. So that is a fallback. It's it's um, it's something that that to some people make a lot more sense than to others. Some it doesn't interest them at all. So I, I think though that that I have communicated in this in this time today uh, the importance of the role of the trustee and uh, and the fact that you need to think about what the responsibility is going to be in your case. Think about their relationship with the beneficiaries. Think about their relationship with you. Think about their relationship or their understanding of the portfolio. Think about their skill set. Are they capable of managing that portfolio? Is is it going to be a portfolio that, that you're going to order sold? Are there any particular assets that, that you think will affect who you choose for this role? Do you want to have several to serve simultaneously? Do you want to have... Um, do you want to have veto power that would resist, that would rest with one trustee over another? Um, and you want to be sure and think about your successor trustees. This is hugely important. Now, if you have a trust protector, they can select a successor trustee for you. Sometimes their ability to look down the road is very helpful because there are things they can see 10 years from now that you obviously cannot. Um, but irrespective of that, you should select successor trustees. It's critical. Remember, a trustee can resign. And they have to give notice, and uh, in some cases they'll have to get court's approval. But the point is, they can resign. Um, so you want to think about about who would take up that responsibility when you're gone. So um, I think I've covered this subject pretty well. This was the subject of trustees. We'll we'll circle back on this because we'll incorporate it as we talk about these other roles that we'll talk about in describing the typical revocable trust. But I hope that these will will equip you to be a better client, to be more effective in, in assuring that your plans succeed. Oh, and don't forget, be sure and subscribe to this show. It means a huge deal. Subscription is far better than to simply view or than to simply like, although I like the likes, believe me. But but it's really wonderful when you take the time to subscribe. That's the way we know that that, that we're doing a good job. I mean, that this is a labor of love to do this show. We don't make money from this show, but we enjoy doing it. But we want to believe that we're helping you. So let us know. And the best way to do that is to subscribe. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.